Now on RN, we're going to speak with someone who has extreme knowledge of a subject that feels, well, maybe a little out of sync with the times, moderation. Aurelian Krayutu is Professor of Political Science at Indiana University. He's already the author of two highly regarded books on the topic of moderation. In 2012, there was Virtue for Courageous Minds, Moderation in French Political Thought. And then there was Faces of Moderation, The Art of Balance in an Age of Extremes, which came out in 2017, the year when a peaceful transition of power resulted in Donald Trump becoming 45th President of the United States. In 2023, when the age seems more extreme than ever and balance and art even more rarely practiced, Professor Krayutu has tripled down on moderation in a new book that takes an intriguing form. It's called Why Not Moderation? Letters to Young Radicals. And it aims to present moderation as a radical virtue and, interestingly, a fighting creed. And I'm pleased to say that Aurelian Krayutu joins us on the radio to discuss his letters on RN Now. Thanks for having me, Julian. It's a great pleasure. Look, uh, Aurelian, I don't have the slightest sense of what the letter-reading habits of young radicals might be in 2023, but could you start by telling us more about the form of Why Not Moderation and why you chose to write a book at this time in this way? Well, let me start by saying that the more I write on moderation, the less of it there is. So <laughs> there's, a, there's a little bit of a paradox here. I should probably stop writing so there, there's a chance for moderation, a real <laughs> one, in American politics. But as you pointed out, um, I've been concerned with um, the deterioration of the political uh, scene for some time. It's the, the climate. It's the, the ethos of our politics, the way in which people think about their political engagement that has concerned me. And frankly, it's both left and right, mostly on the right in the United States right now. But it's not just the right. It's, it's a phenomenon called effective polarization, tribalization, sectarianism. So all of these things have concerned me for some time. And uh, I've decided to investigate this, um, this virtue that is so absent from our political life, moderation. And I've discovered that uh, we have there a, a real archipelago, if I may use this term. It's a, a series of islands connected somewhat mysteriously under the water but we don't see all of them. So it's a huge subject. The more I studied it, the more I read about it, I realized there's a tradition of political moderation um, that can be found on both aisles of the political spectrum. And that's what I've been trying to do. In the one of the books that you mentioned at the outset, The Faces of Moderation, I explicitly selected thinkers from both the left, the center, and the right in order to demonstrate that this is not only a conservative virtue, as some people might think of it. So it's an archipelago, it's a tradition of political thought, and it's a complex tradition that is usually simplified when you talk about it. That's why I talked about faces of moderation rather than moderation in the singular. And now you've chosen to do it in the form of letters to young people. I wonder about that choice. Have you given up on the older generation? Or do you think that there's something about young radicalism, which means the message about moderation you want to give is particularly important and pertinent now? Yeah, it's, it's an excellent question. And I, I thought of, of what's the purpose of writing about moderation to people who are already convinced of it. So they tend to be somewhat older, if I may say so. And I include myself in this category, though I'm not that old yet. But the problem is the younger generation. Do they believe in moderation? And talking to my students, I realized that for some of them, moderation is not an ideal. It's not something they believe in. But for others, 
they do believe in such ideal. But it's very important for us not to talk to people who are already convinced of what we believe in, but also to talk to people who actually oppose what we believe in, what we think is true. So that's why I decided that this book, probably the last one that I'm going to write on this topic, is going to be in the form of a letters addressed to people who do not think moderation is the response to the challenges we are facing. And that's why I imagined a series of letters to uh, two people, a student from the left, I called her Lauren, and a student from the right, I called him Rob, who come from different backgrounds. I've met students like Lauren and Rob, but Lauren and Rob are imaginary interlocutors in my book. So I wanted to make a dynamic book, a book of uh, really a dialogue, because there is something about moderation that is intrinsic in dialogue. A real dialogue means that you learn to listen, to take into account points of view that contradict your ideas and so forth. So I think that the dynamic form of the book reflects the nature of the virtue. It, it would be presumptuous to write a treatise about moderation, but it's very important to have a dialogue, a conversation, in which each of us complements each other's ideas and viewpoints and learns from the other. In one of your early letters, you talk about your own upbringing and trajectory as someone who grew up on the, quote, wrong side of the Iron Curtain, and how that makes you different from those of us raised in freedom in the West. Could you tell us a little bit more about that? Well, paradoxically, I think there's a little bit of an advantage in having been raised on the other side of the Iron Curtain. I call it, to amuse myself, the wrong one, but in (laughs) many ways, it's not that bad. Why am I saying so? Because I was immunized against the temptation of utopianism in politics. Communism was a huge utopian endeavor. And I realized early on that ideas do have consequences. Good ideas have good consequences and bad ideas have bad consequences. So communism was such a bad idea to begin with. And the application of it was actually tragic in many cases. I come from Romania. Uh, so I was born in, in Romania, and I uh, saw also the exit from communism that was tragic in that case. So I was immunized against the temptation of utopianism in politics early on, and I realized that it's very important to ins- instill the virtues of, let's say, compromise, moderation, uh, civility into the fabric of normal politics. Now, the irony is that after coming to the United States, I've discovered that those virtues are in short supply even on this side of the pond, <laughs> so to speak. So in a way, what I learned there on the other side of the curtain before 99, I think has been a, a useful experience for me to realize again uh, how fragile our open society is. We grew up with an ideal, which was the ideal of an open society. And we thought that after the uh, Iron Curtain fell, it would be easy to build anew that open society. But that has proven to be very difficult there, and it's proven to be difficult here to maintain this fragile fabric of the open society is is a constant endeavor that requires moderation, among other virtues. On RN, we're speaking with Professor Aurelian Krayutu about his new book, Why Not Moderation? Letters to Young Radicals. And Aurelian, you've described moderation as a concept that's something akin to an archipelago. Could you map out some of the larger islands in the archipelago and some of the different aspects of moderation that you think are particularly important to focus on? Well, moderation has many faces. There is a a moral component to moderation, moderation as a virtue. And this is 
the ancient archipelago, if I may say so. You can find this aspect of moderation in the works of Aristotle, even Plato, and Cicero. So what we find in, in their works is the idea of moderation as an ethical virtue, is a virtue that corrects the excesses of our passions, brings them into harmony, and creates a harmonious synthesis between our desires and passions. That's one aspect of moderation. But there is also the institutional aspect of moderation, which is usually neglected. What do I mean by that? Well, when we talk about a moderate political system or a moderate government, to use Montesquieu's phrase, Montesquieu distinguished between moderate and immoderate governments, what we have in mind is a series of institutions. For example, checks and balances, separation or balance of powers, federalism, executive veto, bicameralism, or polycentricity, to use a term close to the Bloomington School of Eleanor and Vincent Ostrom, different centers of powers. So the idea that problems, political, social, economic problems, can be solved at different levels, and different levels have different answers to these challenges, I think all of those ideas point in one direction, which is political and economic and social moderation. So the archipelago is comprised of moderation as an ethical virtue, but also moderation as an institutional and constitutional virtue. And usually I've noticed that this aspect of moderation as a set of institutions or constitutional structure is neglected. There's a third element, or maybe there are two more elements, four in total. There's a religious aspect of moderation that is usually neglected, uh, but it's very important. There are some religious traditions that tend to be extreme, but most of them are moderate. There is a component of moderation in many religions, including Islam, but I would mention here Christianity, Jewish tradition, Confucianism, Buddhism, and Shintoism. All of those traditions have ingrained in themselves, so to speak, an element of moderation. And there is moderation as an ethos, as a style. I'll give you an example here. It's taken from Scandinavia. The Swedes have this word, lagom. Lagom means having neither too much not too little, understanding that your role is to share something with others, enjoy life in moderation, as it were, without excesses. I think the Danish have another word, hike. So I think that all of these words send us a message, which is that there is something about a certain lifestyle that is lived with moderation, with balance, and I think that that's important. So you can't assume that moderation has one face. It comprises all of these faces. That's the archipelago of moderation that I'm, I'm writing about. One of the intriguing aspects of your description is the fact that you say moderation can be a fighting creed. Fighting perhaps not being something that you associate with moderation. When and how should moderation be a fighting creed? Well, let me step back one moment here and say moderation is not for all season and for everyone. There are moments in history when it's important not to be moderate. For example, it's important to be rebellious, to be fighting against oppression, against totalitarianism. And that's the answer to your question, I guess. Moderation has this rebellious side that doesn't accept oppression or domination. You can't be moderate in dealing with Stalin. You can't be moderate in dealing with Hitler. And I would say today, it's very difficult to be moderate in dealing with someone like Vladimir Putin, who is invading another country under our own eyes. So there are moments when moderation has to become rebellious, has to become a fighting creed. 
But it doesn't mean that, that you are going to be a fanatic either. So to give a, another example, in the fight against communism during the 1950s, there were some rabid anti-communists who were all against communism, and they assumed that the world can be divided into the forces of evil and the forces of good, darkness, and light, and they went full speed in one direction. And there were others like Isaiah Berlin, for example, the philosopher from Oxford, who understood that the world is seen can be seen through many windows, and there are many ideas that are valuable in different traditions. So when you fight against communism, you have to understand that, that there are some, some things that matter in one tradition and can be used in the fight against communism without being rabid anti-communist. So the same can be said in the fight against, let's say, Putin today. Moderation has a fighting element built into it when you understand at the same time that politics always implies compromise, always implies plurality of views, and you need to take into account. So if you can combine the two, on the one hand, acceptance of plurality of viewpoints and determination to fight against blatant injustice, blatant evil, so to speak, then you have this combination, paradoxical, of rebellious moderation as a fighting creed. When you mention some of those greater historical horrors, I suppose it puts the current age in context, but it does feel, I think, that we are living in a time where things are tending more towards extremes. And that made me wonder, from your study of moderation, Aurelian, what does it take to transition from an age of extremes to a more temperate time in a way that's, well, relatively moderate? Well, I don't think I have an answer to this question, and I think that the simplest way to answer it would be to say it starts with each of us, but there are some institutional changes that must occur. To give you a concrete example, the American politics, we are going to have primary elections in the winter, and I think that the way in which the system is structured, I think, makes a difference. So if, if you have primaries in which the extremist, radical, fanatic voices have an edge over the more moderate candidates, then we have a problem. And I think that there are ways in which we can structure the primaries in such a way that, uh, for example, the first candidate who has the greatest number of votes doesn't take all of the full votes. So we can go for a proportional representation of sorts. So there are small institutional changes that can be made. But at the other end of the story, I think it starts with each of us. It starts with our awareness of our current situation. What do I mean by that? We all tend to live in bubbles and echo chambers. So if we, each of us makes an effort to get out of those bubbles and echo chambers, to try to socialize and listen to people who have different views, who challenge our viewpoints, who kind of force us to reconsider our options, I think that's a good thing. So that would be needed, I think, to make that transition that you are mentioning from an age of extremes to an age of, let's say, a little bit more moderation. Who is in the pantheon of moderation for you? Are there great practitioners of moderation that you see on the stage today? I wrote the book in 2017, Faces of Moderation, precisely as a series of intellectual vignettes to honour those whom I consider to be, in our age, possible models for us. The thinker that I admire the most in many ways, and that is the French sociologist and political philosopher Raymond Aron. Aron lived between 1905 and 1983, was a famous sociologist. He is known for many books, but one in particular, The Opium of Intellectuals, published in 1955. Aron was 
exemplary, in my view, for standing up for the right issues and the right causes. In the 1930s, he was in Germany, fought against Nazism, understood very clearly what danger it posed to Western civilization, went to London, fought with uh, General de Gaulle from there against the fascist regime in France, came back to France, and then he understood the importance of fighting against totalitarianism, communism in particular, in uh, the 1950s, 60s, and even 70s. But he was not a rabid anti-communist. He understood the importance of social democracy. So he was a sort of social democrat at heart. He started on the left, but he was never a rigid anti-communist as he was portrayed by his opponents. Another thinker that I, I read with great interest and whose views I treasure a lot was Isaiah Berlin, a professor of uh, history and political thought at Oxford, who wrote a lot about nationalism, about liberty, and he died in 1997. He was born in Russia in 1909. From Berlin, I, I learned the importance of pluralism, the idea that the world can be seen through many windows, there are many colors, many lights, and we need to honor them. There is no single libretto in history. History is open-ended, it depends on our choices. And there are other examples, but I would like to add one more who is closer to us, and that was the Polish dissident Adam Michnik. He's the only living character from my book. He was born in 1946, so he's, what, 78 years old now, 77. Adam Michnik was a hero of the anti-communist resistance in Poland, and he became a hero of the resistance to the new, uh, let's say, authoritarian regime in Poland after 1989, especially in the last 10 years. So from Michnik, I take the importance of, of moral courage and the idea that you need to talk to your opponents, but you need to stand firm for your beliefs. So he was offered the option of going into exile in 1982 or so, and he decided to stay in Poland and fight for freedom. I admire that very much. And there are other characters that we can admire in today's age, but those are the, the three that I would like to mention in particular. The new book is called Why Not Moderation? Letters to Young Radicals. Just one final question. As you mentioned, you've written these letters to fictional students, but also you teach real students at a highly regarded Midwest university, which I assume has its fair share of IRL young radicals. What are your reflections on having real-life dialogues with people like that? Do you have many zealous converts to the cause of moderation? Are you optimistic about the ability for people to come to an appreciation of moderation at an early age? Selling moderation to a young audience is difficult, as we discussed earlier, if not impossible. But there are ways in which you can convince younger interlocutors of the importance of moderation. For example, freedom of speech. I do teach in my classes a wonderful text on liberty by John Stuart Mill, written in 1859, a book that makes a very strong case for the importance of freedom of speech, viewpoint diversity. We talk a lot about diversity today, but we need to also talk about viewpoint diversity. If you are on the left and you believe in your ideas, you need to learn why your critics on the right hold the views that they hold, and vice versa. If you are someone on the right, you need to Put yourself into the mental space of people on the left and understand how they view the world through their own eyes. And this is something that I try to instill in my students. And frankly, I've discovered, much to my great surprise, that they like this approach and they are willing to try. It's not easy. It's very easy to stay in your bubble. But students feel the need for this dialogue and freedom of the speech and viewpoint diversity. And I think that that's a very hopeful sign for the, for the future.
Thanks so much for speaking with us on RN. Thank you for having me. Aurelian Krayutu is Professor of Political Science at Indiana University, and his upcoming book is called Why Not Moderation? Letters to Young Radicals. ABC RN helps you understand the world. Find more of our stories on the ABC Listen app.